God is good all the time. time. Welcome to everybody joining us online and our CM campus. I just want to remind you that uh, this is all holy space tonight. So I'm, I'm so grateful for those of you that are worshiping with us in the cafe. And we just want to extend Uh, what we're doing all the way to the end. And this is a place where we can just come and worship and we can hear God together. We're now at the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's time to take the last few steps of our journey and then reflect on the time that we've had together. Melissa and I used to do a great deal of day hiking. And one of the greatest things about day hiking was when the hike was over. We would take a Jeep, and before that, it was a mountaineer, and we would fill a great big cooler full of ice-cold Diet Pepsis, and we would make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, put them in plastic bags, and set them on top of the ice, and we called those trail steaks. And so when we were done with the hike, it was an ice-cold Diet Pepsi, a half-frozen peanut butter and jelly sandwich, And either Doritos or barbecue potato chips. And I've got to tell you, it's like the best meal ever. Sometimes after you get off the trail, it's just great to to ponder the journey. Recount what you saw and how you felt. That's what we're going to do as we finish up tonight. Next week, we're going to lean into a brand new series. We're calling it Reign of Freedom. We're going to discover how the only true path to freedom is fully submitting to God. And it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. But the only path to freedom is in full submission to God. So we're going to start that next week. And with that, this is the perfect time to invite somebody to come to Going Deeper because we're starting something new. It's always the perfect time. So there are some invite cards right out on uh, the table, right outside of the door. Pick these up. The best way to invite somebody is personally and invite them to come with you. Say, hey, come a little early. We'll grab some supper. I'll introduce you to some nice people. And uh, we'll just engage in a little bit of worship and word. And Bringing somebody with you is is a great way to go. So you might want to be thinking of somebody that you could invite, somebody you could bring with you next week. And you know what's cool about the start of a series? If somebody kind of gets locked in, they, they may just start coming every week, and you never know what God can do through that. I always hate to say goodbye to a perfectly good series. It, it makes me sad to be done. I, I think you could say I'm hermeneutically retentive in, in that what. I mean, how else could you explain getting a whole session out of three closing goodbyes from Philippians? But I'm going to tell you, not only are we going to get a closing session out of those three goodbyes, we're going to have an awesome conclusion tonight to this series. First of all, I want to remind you the Bible doesn't happen once upon a time in a land far away. It happens in time and space. So let's get our orientation here. Here we are at Fairview Heights. We're going to pull up. And if you're going to go anywhere in the world, you have to go to St. Louis first. So we're going to fly from St. Louis, who now has a non-direct, a direct flight to Frankfurt, Germany. How's that? So now you can go from St. Louis to Frankfurt. So we're going to land in Germany. 
where they have all kinds of perfectly horrible food, really. And then we're going to go to Istanbul, which is where we'll be flying in in our next pilgrimage. Then we're going to go back west to Philippi. So it kind of gives you an idea of where we are. When I was a kid, I was taught that formal letters had an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. Welcome to the conclusion of Philippians. The conclusion is normally something people skip over. And my argument is, if God wanted us to skip over it, he wouldn't have put it in the Bible. So my belief is that everything that's in the Bible has something to offer us. Everything. So let's take a look at this, and then we'll wrap up the series. Verses 21 and 22. Give my greetings to everyone. Those with me send their greetings, especially the household of Caesar. For the purpose of our series, we set Paul's imprisonment in Rome, but there's a lot of debate concerning that. When you teach and when you write, you just have to make up your mind, take your best guess, and live with it. Otherwise, you're just flying all over the place. Paul well could have been imprisoned somewhere else. But verse 22 is the strongest argument for a Roman origin to this letter. There's only one Caesar, and Caesar lived in Rome. The term household of Caesar could have meant civil servants anywhere in the empire. And I fully get that. But the specific nature of this statement cannot be ignored. I think Paul writes from Rome, and he is talking about the servants directly serving the emperor who is in Rome. Though incarcerated, Paul writes from the center of his world. All roads lead to Rome in the ancient world. He writes from the very epicenter And like a large rock thrown into the middle of a calm pond, the ripples went out in every direction, and the ripples are still moving today. So, why? Why does Paul end at this time? Why does Paul end the letter in this way? Perhaps he just doesn't want to go on and on. Have you ever been talking to someone and think it would be great if I shut up? Uh huh. If you've never done that, you might want to consider it. Because there are times that you're just kind of going on and on, and you, you kind of should be aware that, uh, that maybe you've said all you have to say and you're still talking. So maybe Paul did that. Maybe Paul said, okay, that's really what I wanted to say. It's time to wrap this thing up. Uh, perhaps he didn't want to leave somebody out. You start mentioning names, right? You start mentioning names, you can leave somebody out. and. Hurt feelings never help anything, particularly if you're writing to encourage somebody. You know, can you imagine you write to encourage a family of four and you only mention three of the names? One of them's not feeling real great about life. So maybe it's that. But more likely, we know that persecution was rampant. And I don't think Paul wants to cause trouble for specific people if the letter gets in the wrong hands. That's, that's why I think. Uh, in the other letters... He, he names names. He doesn't here. And I just think he doesn't want to cause trouble for people. So instead of names, the, the readers are generally addressed by groups. So Christians in Philippi, those who are with Paul in his incarceration, but most shockingly, the household of Caesar. What in the world are you going to do with that? This is a time of active persecution by an increasingly unstable Nero, who ruled from 54 to 68 AD, Nero had a peculiar and strong antipathy toward Christians. 
And Paul's evidence is, or Paul's incarceration is evidence of that. They got Peter too. Quite apart from the formal charges against Paul, the Romans had a pretty good method for shutting down populist movements that they perceived to be potentially problematic. The play was to publicly take out the ringleaders. So what you normally start with is intimidation. You just lean on them and see if they'll back off. Then you normally try to buy them. You just offer them some money and see if they'll back off. Then you jail them and see if the movement kind of dies with their leader in jail. And if all else fails, you execute them. Now, we all know the problem with executions is that somebody can turn into a martyr. That's also a problem with long-term imprisonments. And so it kind of went that way. So I think Paul is a victim of this kind of strategy. Uh, You start at the top, you keep taking out leaders until the movement dissolves. Clearly, it backfired in the case of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that was what they did. They took Jesus out, but clearly... It backfired, but you don't change effective public policy just because one instance doesn't work out. So I think Paul is facing capital trial. The Philippian church had to feel overexposed, underencouraged, and overwhelmed. Paul gives his readers, I think, a little bonus here. You ever just give somebody a little something extra? I think it's what he did here. He gives them some, a juicy tidbit of unexpectedly good news. All right, he's actually made evangelistic inroads among the servants of Caesar himself. It's unexpectedly good news. We got inside. We got inside the household of Caesar. The gospel got inside the household of Caesar. As an enfranchised political prisoner, Paul would have encountered a host of civil servants representing the empire. Since tending to prisoners was, in one way or the other, was a part of their job, nobody is going to be under suspicion for hanging out with Paul because that's what they did. So hanging out with Paul for the household of Caesar carried no personal risk whatsoever. But we know that Paul is an evangelistic virus. He's just a virus. The longer he stays anywhere, the more people he infects with Christianity. That's what I want to be. I want to be an evangelistic virus. Seriously, I'm just, Paul infected people with Christianity. So apparently some of these government employees had come to know Jesus through the witness of Paul. It may be of interest that though Paul was soon executed for his faith, the virus that he planted came to full bloom in 384 AD when the entire Roman Empire became Christian. The virus was planted there, it comes to fruition 300 and about 20 years later. The bottom line is that we may never truly know what impact our service to Christ makes. We may never know what impact our witness for Christ makes. But there is a promise that it will make an impact. Not all planted seeds grow rapidly. Some years back, a new family began attending Christ Church. When I asked what brought them here, they replied that 
we had conducted what we used to call a hang-and-run campaign. Was anybody here during the hang-and-run days? Yeah, it sounds quite awful, really. But what we did was we got brochures of, of the church. We put them in plastic bags. The plastic bags had a circle at the top, and we just popped them on doorknobs. That was it. It was you hang, and you just took off. You didn't, you didn't knock. You didn't talk. You just hang and run. So we would get teams, and we would literally hit entire neighborhoods with hang and runs all over the region. And so this particular family had gotten one of our invitations. So they pulled it out, and they put it on with a magnet onto their refrigerator, and it sat there for, drum roll please, two years. Two years. It, it stayed on their refrigerator for two years. And then one day, they all decided to come to church. They loved it, they joined the church, and they became very, very active members here until they moved away. So I said all that to say this, uh, it may well be the person that hanged that brochure on that door, they might have thought they had the worst day ever. I mean, if I would have asked them that day, how did things go? They might have said terrible. You know, it didn't go well at all. We might have thought that was one of the least successful campaigns we'd ever had. But the reality is some seeds can lie dormant for a long time before germinating. And God doesn't ask us to measure the time it takes a seed to germinate. He just asks us to sow seeds. So you may have invited somebody to church. You say, well, they didn't come. Well, they may not this year. And they may not next year. But it may be that when something happens in their life, a death, an addiction, a crisis, prodigal son, prodigal daughter, DUI, when something happens in their life, they may just show up because you invited them. Verse 23, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit. Paul's sign-off breaks with the tradition of the time. The tradition of the time in the Roman Empire was you would sign off a letter with be strong. And I like that. Be strong. That's how you would finish a letter. But Paul's final word is not based in human might. It's based in grace. And specifically in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The benediction is not that human strength would fill the body of the reader. It's that the grace of Christ would fill the spirit of the reader. The Greek word translated spirit is pneuma. That that word kind of slid into English a little bit. What do you call a tire that holds air? A pneumatic tire. It comes from pneuma in in the Greek. And it means breath like like a wind. It's, It's... This is a prayer for fresh wind or refreshing winds. Have you ever had a time in your spiritual life you just needed some fresh wind? You know, you just just needed God to to send some fresh wind your way. It's not lost on me that the New Testament church was formed in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And you remember how they described the event. It was like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Wind. When we're out of breath from climbing the steep 
stretches of life's highway. Sometimes we just need a few minutes to get our wind back. Paul hoped this letter would serve that for the church. So, we're done. We're off of the trail. So now it's time to get out some trail steaks, crack open the Diet Pepsis, see whether you have Doritos or barbecue chips, and we are going to look at 10 themes from the entire book of Philippians. This is all of Philippians in 10 ideas. Let's wrap up our trek by looking at these big themes and re-examining them in the light of our journey. Not how we encountered them, but in the light of the overall journey. If you're taking notes, now's when you do it. 10 forged themes. Number one, you are appreciated. That's it. Verse one, three. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. You are appreciated. Isn't that kind of, doesn't that feel kind of good? I mean, sometimes, don't, don't you feel unappreciated sometimes? You just feel unappreciated. You are appreciated. The good we do in this world will not be forgotten. It's not going to be forgotten by those we love. It's not going to be forgotten by those we assist. And it's not going to be forgotten by God. So letting people who have positively touched our lives know that they're appreciated is a good start to anything. It's just a good start to anything. I'm going to tell you this. You want to get invited to more birthday parties? Start telling people how much you appreciate them. It feels great to be appreciated. It just feels great. Number two, we're works in progress. Verse 1-6. I am sure that the God who began the good work in you will continue his work to completion. Anybody else say, yeah, I'm a work in progress? Yeah. Yeah, so when people tell you, boy, you're a piece of work, say, well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. How kind. None of us here tonight are what we fully aspire to be. But praise God, we're not what we used to be. When it comes to our spiritual walk, how far along we may be, is not nearly as important as which direction we're headed. Are you headed a good direction? Are you headed the right direction? It's important. And I think it's why we need to have realistic expectations. Otherwise, the devil will just beat us up with condemnation. I've got a book coming out at the end of the month called The Ping Life. And many of you are familiar with the concept. But the big idea is this. How do Christian people live our lives in such a way as they're joyful and abundant and not spend our whole lives chewed up by guilt? How do we live this beautiful Christian life without just feeling like we're letting God and everybody else down eight days a week? Well, I think part of it's just having realistic expectations. I don't play golf much anymore. I used to play a lot, and I'm not nearly as good as I used to be. And I guess some folks would go out and find that really frustrating, but I got to tell you, it doesn't bother me much at all. It just doesn't. I used to be pretty good, and now I'm terrible. doesn't bother me all that much. You want to know why? Because when I do get out and play, I have to keep in mind. There is no rational reason to think I'm going to do consistently well. None. Golf's really hard. Physics are working against you. Mathematics is against you. Nature is against you. Muscle memory is against you. Everyone is against you in golf. There's no reason to think I'm going to buck those kind of odds. 
None. I don't practice at all. I don't play. I don't think about golf. There's no reason to think I'm going to do well. Now, that being said, if I decided I was going to practice an hour and a half a day, and I was going to play three times a week, I have no doubt my golf would improve. And I have no doubt my sermons would get worse. (laughs) And if I decided to commit to playing a whole lot of golf, I would adjust my expectations. But right now when I go out, why would I get frustrated because I'm not consistent? There's no reason to think I would be. None. Some people lament I'm not a very good Christian. And I guess they sometimes want you to say, well, yes, you are, right? It's like someone singing, I'm not a very good singer. Well, yes, you are. Sometimes we got to be like Randy Jackson on the old American Idol. Singing's not for you, dog. (laughs) Right? Sometimes you just got to tell the truth a little bit. I'm not a very good Christian. You know what I normally say? It's, It's, why would you be? I mean, seriously, being a Christian is really hard. It's a fallen world. There's devil, devil crap flying all about. You know, I mean, living for Jesus in a fallen world is really hard. And if you don't pray and worship and study the Bible and serve and witness, why would you possibly expect you're going to be a good Christian? I mean, it's not a realistic expectation. So when it comes to our spiritual development, I would encourage you, number one, invest in it. So did you realize part of what you're doing tonight is investing in your spiritual development? Because you are here tonight and you make that choice. You have reason to expect you are going to grow as a Christian. There is good reason to expect that. You're putting the time in. Number two, have realistic expectations. Just be realistic about where you are and what you're doing. So, for example, you grew up and you don't know a thing about the Bible. Nothing. One of the things I've really learned is A... A lot of people who have spent their whole life in church have no idea what's actually in the Bible. And B, when they find out, it makes them mad. It does because it doesn't align with their politics. And when you look at the Bible, Jesus isn't really concerned about American politics. Jesus is concerned about being the son of God. And he doesn't really care what you think politically. And so when you read the Bible, you're going to have to have some realistic expectations. You know, I don't... They say... 2 John 6, 2, and I don't know where it is. Well, first of all, there may not even be a 2 John 6, 2. Second of all, you may not know where it is, but why would you? Nobody taught it to you. You haven't learned it yet. So get off your own case. You know what I think about these guys that I'll go see them play golf, and I'll look at their swing. It's the ugliest thing I have ever seen in my life. It's clear. They don't play Ever. And nobody's ever taught them. And they swing. <laughs> the ball kind of duck hooks off. And they look for the ball that's actually behind them. And you even, wouldn't even think it's possible. And you're, you're looking at them. And then they throw their clubs and they curse. And you know what I'm thinking? You're a stinking idiot. Why would you let that upset you? There's no reason to expect you're going to do well. You go out and practice, get some lessons and play. Now all of a sudden we have better expectations. So when it comes to Christianity, don't expect sainthood overnight. It's not going to happen overnight. It takes a while. It takes a while to learn to play golf. It just takes a while. So don't expect sainthood overnight. 
Four, celebrate your victories. You know, I love that. Celebrate your victories. When you know you responded better than you would have, that is a reason to celebrate. You said, well, I still didn't respond great. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about improvement. You may still be a D student, but if you were an F student, you're heading in a good direction. Celebrate it. And then number five, just monitor your improvement. Just monitor your improvement. Build on it. You have a good day? Build on it. You know, if you're not a good hitter in baseball, but you have a good game, you got something to build on. Build on your successes. Don't beat, you up over, don't beat yourself up over your failures. All right, number three, don't beat weak sauce. 120, I pray I will not embarrass myself or embarrass Christ by my weakness or bad behavior. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord's Prayer basically contains an entire petition that we don't shoot ourselves in the foot. I think it's a good prayer. Control your impulses. Think before you act. Pray for wisdom and discernment. Pray that you will honor God. And pray for God's strength to run the race well. These are things I have to pray about every single day. I have to fight my flesh, my frustration, uh, every single day. So pray that you will not embarrass yourself or embarrass Christ by your weaknesses or, or your bad behavior. We don't want to do that. Number five, tap into God's power. 2.13, God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to please him. We should live in constant awareness that God's work is being done in us. You are still under construction. God is still at it. There's still a van out in front. They say on hot July days, sometimes you can hear the corn grow. Have you ever heard the axiom that you can hear the corn grow? We should be able to hear our growth in Christ sometimes. You can just hear it. We should consistently ask God to give us the desire to obey him. You ever, have you ever prayed that? That's something the Bible specifically asks us to do. You know? Dear Lord, would you give me a desire to obey you? Would you give me a desire to go to church? A lot of people say, well, I'm, I, just, I really know I need to go to church today. And so they kind of appeal to some loosely baptized son of a Freudian superego. And they say, well, I, I'm going to do it. It's willpower. It's mind over matter. I'm going to go to church. Eh! If we were capable of pleasing God in our own strength, he would have never had to send Jesus. So why not pray that the Lord would give you a desire to go to church? I like that. Lord, uh, there's a lot of ministry opportunities. I don't want to do any of them because I, I really like watching Netflix. Lord, would you give me a desire to serve you? Would you just give me a desire to serve you? Those are prayers that we're asked to pray. And I don't think we pray them. I just think we either... Do stuff out of duty, guilt, and obligation, or we do nothing and we feel guilty. That's what I think we do. This, this is a different path. We should consistently ask God to give us the desire to obey him and the power to please him. The power for living lives that are pleasing to God is available to us, but we must tap into it. Romans 8, 11 says, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That power is available to us. But I don't think we ask for it. I just don't think we ask for it. Lord, give me a desire to serve you 
and the power to please you. Write that down. Start praying that. See, if, see, what, see just what happens. Just see what happens. Number six, trust in Christ alone. Verse 3, 3, or chapter 3, verse 3. Put no confidence in human effort. Rather, put confidence in what Christ has done. I'm going to say something, and, and it's going to hit some of you poorly. And uh, I, I hope you're young and you'll have time to get over it. So here we go. <laughs> you can't spiritualize low self-esteem or self-loathing and call it humility. Humility has nothing do to do with thinking less of ourselves. It has everything to do with thinking of ourselves less. Humility is placing our minds and our hope in Christ, not in ourselves. It's not our grip on God that saves us. It is God's grip on us. On our own, the ceiling will always be low. Through Christ, the ceiling is always high. Humility is not self-deprecation. It's saying, I can do great things in Christ. And we'll hit that in a second. Number seven, we're all full of something. Verse 4, 4, always be full of the joy of the Lord. Did I mention that we all also leak? We're all full of something and we're all leak. Think about babies. What do they do? They eat and they leak. That's what they do. That's it. Those are their tricks. Eat, leak. Always be full of the joy of the Lord. What we're leaking is probably the most accurate measure of what fills us. How's that? What comes out of you is the most accurate measure of what's in you. This morning, I was pulling into the McDonald's on 159. My dad and I have coffee most mornings. And, and I guess somebody was at Lowe's early in the morning, and they bought like one of those five-gallon uh, pails of paint, and it flew out of their truck, I guess, and it hit the ground and exploded. And so there was paint all over 159 in between Lowe's and McDonald's. And, of course, cars ran right through it. And so there was just tracks everywhere, cars everywhere. I got a little bit of white uh, on my uh, tires because I ran over it, too, because I didn't have any choice. And so, but it's there. And, and I was sitting there thinking, you know, one thing you don't have to wonder about. I'm not sure how this happened. I have a hypothesis. But one thing I don't have to worry, wonder about is what was in that pail because it's all over the road. It was white paint, and there was quite a bit of it. I, didn't, I saw the pail. I don't have to wonder what was in it because it was all out. We don't have to wonder what's in us. We just need to pay attention to what comes out. And I think the task as we grow in Christ is that, is that better stuff would more consistently come out of us. Better stuff. And, and a lot of times we, we compare ourselves to Mother Teresa, you know, or we compare ourselves to the very best Christian you know. I guarantee you they've spent more time practicing than you have. <laughs> I guarantee you they, they've spent some time on this. And so don't compare yourself to other people. Compare yourself to you. And don't necessarily even base it on how far along you think you are. Look at whether or not you're improving. Look at whether or not you're headed the right direction. And when you have those victories, celebrate them. Just celebrate them. People shouldn't have to wonder what fills Christian people. Increasingly, love, joy, and peace should be spilling out of us. One of my all-time favorite stories uh, happened in softball, uh, gosh, almost 20 years ago. 
Jimmy Shoftal. Anybody know Jim? Jim is a, is a wonderful, wonderful guy. Jim was the pitcher on uh, back when we before we played tournament teams and all that. He was the pitcher on just our church league team, and uh, and I played shortstop on the team that he pitched. We had two teams, and so. Jim was pitching one day, and he just couldn't throw a strike. He just couldn't throw a strike. And when he did, they were just drilling the ball. And when they would hit the ball to us, we'd make an error. It was just one of those, you know, it's just it's a bad inning. And it was hard for me because I don't enjoy sports played poorly. I don't. I don't enjoy it. And I was not having fun. People say, well, just have fun. Sucking at softballs, not fun. It just isn't. And so I was having a terrible time. So I'm trying to control my impulses. So ball goes to the right fielder. Guy is on first. There's another guy on third. Daryl, strawberryness, prime. Couldn't have thrown that guy out. This guy just throws a lollipop about 16 feet over his cutoff, man. Now the guy on first is on second, and the guy scores. I can't stand it anymore. I just can't stand it. So I went like this. I just shut my mouth. And I looked at Jim, and Jim is laughing. <laughs> Joyfully. And I thought, we're exposed to the exact same stimuli, and I am about to have a major stroke. And the joy of the Lord is just kind of oozing out of Jim. Oh, it was sickening. And I thought to myself, Jim, buddy, I need to be more like you in this area. You got something to teach me, man. How do you do that? You know, how do you do that? Those are great questions. Number eight, pray, don't worry. Verse, chapter four, verse six, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. You see, we all have triggers that cause our anxiety to flare, right? We all have triggers, things that just get to us. We have no control over these. I, hand, I seem to handle big things well and small things poorly. I don't know how you do, but some stuff just gets under my skin, and it's not great. I have no control over so much of that. What we can control is how we respond when life pulls those anxiety triggers. And the choice we have is we can worry or we can pray, but you can't do both. They're mutually exclusive realms of existence. So if you're going to worry, it's going to push out prayer. But if you pray, it's going to push out worry. So when these things come, pray, don't worry. The Philippians had plenty to worry about. Paul said, no, you don't. You got plenty to pray about. Just pray about it. Number nine, keep your head in a good space. Just keep your head in a good space. Chapter 4, verse 8, fix your thoughts on good things. Consciously and strategically, off-ramp negative inputs from your life and on-ramp positive inputs. Off-ramp negative people that are always pulling you in the wrong direction. Uh, on-ramp positive people. I know you can't off-ramp everybody, like your boss or relatives, but we do have choice about who we spend a lot of our time with. Why don't you spend more time with positive people who love God and less time with negative people who are always tempting you to go the wrong direction? I mean, that's not real complicated, but it's right there. You see, confession, repentance, that kind of thing, uh, that, that empties us. When we confess our sins, 
when we repent of our sin, it empties us. And then things like prayer and study and worship, they, they fill us. They, they fill us. So pour out as much of the bad as you can. Pour in as much of the good as you can. Kind of simple. But pay close attention to your inputs, and you will have consistently better outcomes. All right, I'm going to say it one more time. Pay better attention to your inputs, and you'll have consistently better outcomes. And then number 10, unleash the power. Just unleash the power. Chapter 4, verse 13. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Say that with me. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All of Philippians is encapsulated in this single verse. For me, it's the very definition of biblical humility. If you ask me for a scripture that clearly denotes biblical humility, I would say I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. On my own, I can do nothing helpful. Through Christ, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, when we rely on Christ to give us strength, we can dream in Christ. We can believe in Christ. We can grow in Christ. We can hope in Christ. We can achieve in Christ because the victory is in Jesus. The victory is in Jesus. If we're getting our timeline right, we know that Paul was executed soon after the writing of this letter. We know that Paul never returned to Philippi. You could well argue that the impassioned prayers and supplications of the Philippians concerning Paul were not answered. They prayed that he would be found innocent and that he would be set free. They were not answered. He prayed that he would be exonerated and returned to Philippi. Wasn't answered either. When the Philippians got word that Paul had been executed, some had to wonder, if God is so powerful, why is Paul dead? Why in the world would God not want Paul to be released? How could Paul's death serve a greater purpose than his life? This makes no sense at all. I guarantee you there were people who thought that. Answering such questions is why Paul wrote this letter in the first place. He instructed the Philippians to be joyful and give thanks to God, even or if he is exonerated and returned to ministry. And he instructs them to be joyful and give thanks to God if he's found guilty and executed. And you say, how can anyone respond the same way if things go great or if things go terrible? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians is not a book about how to get your prayers answered when you want, where you want, and how you want. It's a book about how to keep the faith and retain your joy when the news is bad, when the answer is no, when you don't understand why, and when life unfolds in ways that make no sense to you at all. The lessons learned in Philippians offer us a real shot at forging an indomitable, unshakable, and unbreakable faith. It's a faith that says, Lord, I will be faithful if the answer to my prayers is yes or no. If you heal me or if you do not. If you restore me or if you do not. If you rescue me or if you do not. 
If I overcome my addiction or I do not, if my prodigal returns or if they do not, if my relationships are restored or if they are not, if my situation improves or it does not, if my depression lifts or it does not, if my doubt subsides or if it does not, Lord, I will be faithful. That's what Philippians is all about. That's why it's awesome. And as a kid, we were regaled by R-rated stories from the Bible. It was awesome. Especially Old Testament stories, right? A lot of carnage and such in the Old Testament. These were wonderful and horrific stories offered without filters or apologies. They were the kind of stories that forge little boys and little girls into men and women of God. They're the kind of stories that grow up. Among the best of them was the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were Jewish young men who had been exiled to Babylon after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Those of you reading Ezekiel, Ezekiel is written during that exact time period. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had not surprisingly declared himself a god. And he built a 90-foot-high golden statue of himself and then demanded that everyone worship it. He further mandated that if someone refused to worship it, they would be killed. When it was discovered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to offer worship to the statue, Nebuchadnezzar was enraged because of their insolence. So since he did like them, he gave them a choice, which is really fairly typical for Babylonian kings. And he said, here's the deal, guys. We're going to bring you out in public. We're going to stoke up a fire, a huge furnace, and we're going to take you right at the top, and we're going to give you one shot. You can worship the gold statue and live, or you can refuse, and we're going to shove you in the furnace, and we're going to watch you burn. Did I mention that Old Testament had R-rated stories? Yeah. So, as the king watched, the furnace was stoked for the executions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were led to the platform. The flames were so out of control, the guards actually were consumed by the flames. And as the king watched, they would get one opportunity to comply with the order and worship the idol. People were watching. This is reality television in the roaring BCs. There would have been thousands of people there. This is a spectacle. Suddenly, one of the trio began to speak for the trio. And the crowd had to be spellbound by the human drama. Would they recant? Would they offer worship? If, if they did, would the king have ordered his servants to go ahead and kick them in the fire anyway? I mean, people would have been on the edge of their seats. As the flame roared, a steady voice could be heard by everyone. We are not going to defend ourselves. We serve a God who is able to save us if you throw us into this furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not serve your God's and we will not worship your idol. I remember hearing that for the first time as a kid, and I'm just thinking, far out. Awesome. 
awesome. And with that, they were thrown into the fire. And the book of Daniel tells us that not a hair on their head was even singed. Their clothes didn't even smell smoky. They just walked around. In response, they were called out of the furnace. And the humbled God king, Nebuchadnezzar, declared, Praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There is no God who can rescue like this. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. And with that, we conclude this forged series with a single declaration. We will be joyful in all situations. For our God is able to deliver. And our God is able to save. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we will serve him. For there is no God who can rescue like this.